Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of Pacific Talks Season 2. I'm your host, Philippe, and in this podcast, I engage in active conversations with my guests to talk about global challenges through an island perspective. Today, I'm really happy to open a special sequence in this Season 2 of the Pacific Talks. Indeed, today's episode will be the first of a series that will run through the coming weeks that will introduce you to the speakers of the Virtual Island Summit 2022, of which Pacific Venture is an official media partner. The Virtual Island Summit is organized by Island Innovation, a full-service marketing and public relations agency which offers unique insights into island and sustainability. This summit aims to encourage islanders share knowledge and solutions for resilient, sustainable and prosperous island worldwide. Along the summit, we have thus decided to sit with some of the speakers to dig deeper into their projects, ideas and their insights for our Pacific Islands. You'll be able to hear from people from the Pacific, but also from other islands of the globe that share similar challenges and concerns as our Pacific community. For the first episode, I had the privilege to talk with Ariana Thibon. Ariana is a nuclear justice advocate and commissioner and nuclear envoy to the RMI National Nuclear Commission. So now, on to a conversation with Ariana. Ariana, Yorana, Yakwe, welcome to Pacific Talks. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself for those of our listeners who don't know about you yet? Okay, Yakwe, thank you, Philip, for um, in the invitation to join you this morning. It is an honor to be here today. And just to provide a little bit background on myself, my name is Ariana Tiban. And I work with the National Nuclear Commission as a commissioner. I was recently appointed earlier this year. And so it is truly an honor to be here today and to speak on behalf of my people who continue to live with the consequences of nuclear weapons today. And prior to my appointment as a commissioner, I worked with the NNC as an education and public awareness director. And my main goal during then was to educate our children and communities about the nuclear weapons testing program and the effects of such programs that have hindered our livelihood today. Because believe it or not, many Marshallese are not aware of our nuclear legacy. I myself included had no clue that my own family members were test subjects under the United States nuclear weapons testing program. Leading to my second point of how I got involved with this work in nuclear advocacy, Long story short, I was born and raised in the Marshall Islands. I did not learn about the nuclear legacy in school until I had actually left home for college. And during my college years, I decided to write my papers on home. And initially, I would write my papers on diabetes and hypertension and other issues that we were kind of, it was kind of instilled that these are major issues in our country. But the nuclear legacy just was not really a priority. And I'm not too sure how I came across it, but I started, I stumbled upon photos of my family members on Google. And this was during the nuclear testing era. And then I started um, doing further research on this. And so maybe we'll talk more as we go down the questions, but 
that's just a brief background. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, that's actually an interesting uh, context that you provide to understand exactly what's happening in your island. And as you know, French Polynesia, uh, where we are uh, at the moment, uh, has been also a victim of those nuclear experimentations in the 20th century. And both our countries are living today or trying to live with the consequences of this past. Um, so exactly, and you, you touched upon that already a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about what's the situation in your country as of today? What's the level of risks and what are the challenges that it creates on a daily basis for your population uh, regarding those uh, interaction with the nuclear past of the country? Mm -hmm. So... Thank you again, sir. The nuclear weapons testing program drastically altered the livelihood and well-being of the Marshallese people in a way that undeniably violated a number of human rights, and it had caused irreparable harm to the health of many Marshallese. It vaporized several of our islands, and it contaminated most of the atolls throughout the Marshall Islands. And these islands, many islands remain unfit for a human habitation, and they remain economically unproductive for centuries to come. Our, continues, con our communities continue to bear the scars and heavy burden as they live in exile and in conditions of near poverty. And going back in terms of knowledge on this nuclear legacy, the weapons, the nuclear weapons testing program during its years of operation was shrouded in secrecy. And to this day, so much information and knowledge is being withheld from our government and our communities. And even with the declassified files that were provided to us in 1994, many of the files are redacted. And if you actually look through them, there's there's entire chapters that are blank and stamped deleted in these declassified files. And so just more brief background on the nuclear legacy. There was files, hospital charts, photos of babies that were born with birth defects that we describe as jellyfish babies. Um, and more, along with an entire office, were burned when the trust territory was dissolved and the Marshall Islands was navigating its way to independence. Furthermore, the nuclear legacy and its harm to our communities was not a subject taught in schools, as I mentioned, until 2019, after the National Nuclear Commission had worked with the Ministry of Education to include it in the social citizenship education program. The curriculum assimilates various angles of the nuclear legacy from the harm and dangers, the geography, the politics, the health, the social and economic burdens. And we're also trying to get into the science part of it. But at this time, as we can understand, it's already very complicated. Um, and it's been 76 years since the since our nuclear legacy, since the beginning of the story of our nuclear legacy. And by now we have lost many loved ones and their accounts of the events that took place were buried with them. And what we're really trying to do at this point is to plant the seeds of knowledge on this piece of shared history with our students and youth who will then become the drivers for change in the near future. This generational gap of knowledge on the nuclear legacy is unfathomable, and it is imperative that we take the necessary steps to discover the truth. Because, Philip, at this time, our greatest challenge has been 
teaching this legacy because our teachers have to teach themselves before they could teach the students the materials. And a lot of our teachers are too busy to read entire books to understand it. And so we just, we at the National Nuclear Commission just try as best as we could to provide resources or even short video clips that might be helpful for the teachers to get an understanding of certain events. But because we were not taught in the, in schools, I personally believe that this lack of knowledge has caused for a lack of skills in the labor force that might have been helpful for us. So we could have had doctors, we could have had um, scientists, we could have had marine biologists, we could have had teachers that focus just on the nuclear legacy, but because they, uh, the older generation were not taught this information, it's not a priority for them. And I would just like to add further that right now at the College of the Marshall Islands, there is a nuclear institute. Next year, they will be celebrating their 25th anniversary. And this semester, they only have three students enrolled in the nuclear courses in the Pacific, nuclear nuclear issues in the Pacific course. And yeah, and the director was asking students, oh, why don't you enroll for my class? And the students were telling her, oh, my advisor said, it's okay, we can we can leave that, that class for last as sort of like a last chance or a last um, resort elective. And that's and the advisors are Marshallese too, and it's because they they don't fully understand the importance of teaching the students the nuclear legacy. And so, I mean, I don't blame them, I don't blame anybody. But w- what we're just trying to do now is to just educate. At this time, we have many cancer cases. We have, I mean, every family here in the Marshall Islands has a loved one who is either struggling with cancer or has sadly passed away from cancer. And we don't have a single oncologist on island. We don't have a cancer care center. And our government referral program does not refer patients if they have reached stage um, the later stages of cancer because, you know, you know let what is it called less chance survival does would just be kind of not to be mean but the way i think the government sees it would be a waste of funds <laughs> mm. because survival and rate so, would be low yeah and, and so is that the the role that the nuclear commission of Marshall <laughs> islands is about is to educate people or to point out the issues of this nuclear nuclear legacy and then engage the government in taking actions in order to solve that? Is that the, exactly the role you're playing? Or? Yes, the role of the National Nuclear Commission. So just to provide brief background on the NNC, it was established in 2017, and the core mandate for the NNC is to address ongoing issues within the Marshall Islands, whether it's health or environmental issues, and to assist the government in identifying these issues and finding solutions. And so we at the NNC are sort of just facilitators. We, once uh, an issue is identified, we're the ones setting up the meetings between the um, technical people that are involved that would be able to make changes to 
the programs or the systems that are in place. And so when the NNC was established, we the first task was to create a strategy for nuclear justice. And just to briefly um, list down the core pillars of the strategy is compensation, healthcare, environmental remediation, national capacity building, and education and awareness. Mm, okay, interesting. It's it's fascinating to see all the parallels between our two countries. Uh, we can see like the legacy is exactly the same. We're struggling to educate people uh, within our education system and, and raise awareness. And there's obviously the whole uh, health issues that, that come with it. And, and when we compare the two situations, we can definitely see that there's a pattern here on how our countries have suffered short-term vision, short-term decision, or very single-sided decision-making that created those unintended consequences on the long-term for communities that were foreign to the issues that they were trying to solve. So how do you think that the stories of our two countries can help us to be leaders and, and, and definite actors in the fight against nuclear proliferation today. Uh, we hear talks about this nuclear weapon ban treaty that is struggling to gain momentum and to get the big nations who are the nuclear forces to adhere to this, to this treaty. So how can we help spread the word and, and maybe raise awareness among all the nations in the world that uh, the way that we have been impacted and how it can serve as an example for the future? Mm-hmm. Yes, our countries definitely do have a lot in common, sadly, in terms of the nuclear legacy. And our experiences today are very similar. And in terms of the nuclear weapons um, ban treaty, it's it's just it's such a hard topic to discuss because the the countries that are producing these nuclear weapons haven't signed on to the treaty. And it is such a struggle. I how do we convince these countries to sign on to the treaties if they themselves know the the depth of the horrors and harm that they have they have unleashed on our communities and our health and our environment and our people they actually know more than we do on how how dangerous the effects of nuclear weapons are because for my people, for the people of the Marshall Islands, they had conducted the test and then they had used the people as test subjects without the people's consent. And they were collecting samples, whether it was blood samples, urine samples. They even extracted healthy teeth just to see how the body reacts to radiation. And so they have done their studies. They know... They know they they know all the effects and the all the implications and the consequences of nuclear weapons and yet they're still producing these weapons of mass destruction and so i i personally i've been struggling with this i'm not too sure how we can address this but i do believe if we were to for example if if we, if I was just to call the president of the United States and have a discussion with him, sort of like a grandfather and a granddaughter discussion, skip all the formalities and just speak from the heart and just, you know, share all my frustrations with him 
in sort of like, like I said, like a grandfather and a granddaughter um, conversation, maybe then they, they would listen. But then when we bring in all the bureaucrats into a room and we bring in all the politicians and have them discuss, they have their own agenda to take care of. And so I don't know, Philip, this is a hard question, but those are those are just some maybe possible. I'm not sure what my chances are of um even having a phone call with the president of the United States, but I am hopeful. And in the Marshallese language, there is a proverb that says, In English, it's translated to every droplet of water creates an ocean. And so if you're in charge of a droplet, I am in charge of a droplet, my entire family, each of them, and your entire family and your colleagues, we can somehow create tidal waves that would be forceful enough to get us noticed. I don't know. That's just my thoughts. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, is. I mean, it is a very difficult people, question. For us ocean people to be a droplet, that's something that we know to how to deal with. So I guess that helps. Uh, but uh, another hot topic. I mean, this is just by itself a hot topic on and on itself, but. The question of reparation and compensation, it's definitely hard to estimate the prejudice and the damages that were done and, and to give a number to it. But there's still a need to give one number and, and to obtain reparation for that. How is your country dealing with this situation and how, if anything, you use reparation or the idea of compensation as also a tool for the economic development of, of your country? Uh, and how all of this is also uh, analyzed through the filter of all the environmental issues that we are dealing with that are also an issue of short-term vision from uh, those big countries. In terms of um, reparation and economic development building off of the nuclear legacy, just to be honest, we do not have the capacity for um, environmental remediation. We do not have the capacity for caring for our loved ones who are living with radiation-related illnesses. We do not have the capacity for um, just a lot of things. And we rely heavily on the United States to provide certain programs to our people that would, in a way, help the people um, enhance their livelihood. But I'm not too sure what we have in place for the that has been in place for the past 40 years or 50 40 40 years since the first compact negotiations and the second one it it's not working out and we have a lot of issues with just trying to first of all understand the nuclear legacy and and just trying to provide reparation it's something that the RMI government does not have capacity for. And like, just to share, in the atolls that were contaminated, number one, they're uninhabitable. And so the people that used to live there are displaced in other communities that they don't belong to. And number two, Copra is a big um, driver for the economy here. And those people that are living in land that does not belong to them cannot harvest the copra 
from the land that is rightfully theirs because the copra company would not accept that copra because it is deemed to be contaminated. And so it's just, we, I speak for myself on this, not for the government, but I feel like we're very stuck in a way. And I don't know. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. hopefully we, hopefully these um, compact negotiations that are taking place at the moment. I believe this is a godsend um, opportunity for the United States and the Marshall Islands to revisit the agreements and to come up with a just and dignified solution for both countries. Because, Philip, when the compact was negotiated in 1986, well, it was years years prior to 1986, but it was signed off in 1986, we negotiated that compact without any information on what happened to us because all of the files had been classified. And so we kind of just went into the negotiations room blindfolded and just agreeing to what the United States was telling us. And it was not until 1993, 1994 that they started to declassify documents. And we found out or realized a lot more information should have been, should have been considered when we were um, negotiating the first compact. Mm. Sorry, I talk too much. <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's fascinating. And, and again, I mean, I'm, while, while you speak, I'm sort of thinking about the situation of our country where we're also struggling to find the best or the most uh, adapted tool to have compensation, but to have it in a way that will help the country not only recover from the past of the nuclear testing, but also being able to develop more normally uh, because we have been for a long time uh, dependent or, or handicapped by the consequences of those situations and, and finding a way to use this reparation not only as leveling the field but helping the country move forward is, is definitely a key element in the discussion and the negotiation with those uh, big countries. And obviously there's an imbalance in the negotiation as you just said and as you are renegotiating the compact obviously there are now geostrategics and all those elements coming into play that can temper the impact of reparation and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And, and so another parallel that I would like to draw on this is, as you said, dealing with such a huge issue that has so many complexities kind of make us feel stuck. And it's a little bit like what we feel as in the Pacific towards climate change. We feel stuck because we understand exactly the consequences, but we're struggling to convince the big countries to make a change or to step up in that, in that topic. So how, again, how do you, maybe in, your, in, in the Nuclear Commission, how do you think you have a role to play in advocating for climate change and for all those changes that needs to be implemented regarding the history of the nuclear testing? Mm. This is another, like you mentioned, this is another stuck <laughs> chapter, <laughs> incorporating the nuclear legacy and the climate change 
First of all, our people had been displaced from their homes because of the nuclear testing. And now what we face today is large numbers of out-migration. And this time they are being displaced from their country because of climate change. And so, as you mentioned, it's how do we convince the big countries to, because they are the driving force causing climate change and money makes the world go around, right? And so I'm not too sure how, this is just, just, just being very honest. I sometimes lose sleep at night because I, I just, I don't know how to convince the world that climate change is a reality that many of us, I think all of us in the Pacific are living with. And I don't know, it's just, would they then wake up if all our islands are underwater and we would, we're now refugees in their countries? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's hard because even when climate experts say that it is predicted that by 2040 or 2050, we will be submerged in water. It seems like that alone is not enough to convince these mm. big leaders of how problematic that is. And so, I don't know, maybe you can help me come up with solutions on this, but it's a very hard topic for me. And I just, I just, I have no idea how to convince. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, I guess the problem is that the consequences of their decisions are lived by people who are not their people. And so obviously that creates a distance from, from the issue. Uh, but mm -hmm. facing this feeling of being stuck, uh, as you said, uh, how, how do you feel, how do you keep yourself motivated? How do you keep yourself committed? Like what, what pushes you on a daily basis to keep on fighting and, and making sure that you reach your uh, very, very difficult uh, outcome? <laughs> so what keeps me motivated is, is a lot of things. It's pretty much the past, present, and the future. I sometimes honestly feel like all of the burden that's on on the National Nuclear Commission is 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 a lot or I'll, I'll actually let me re rephrase it I sometimes feel like our efforts is just a single grain of sand on a long beach and it's just that one piece of sand is it means nothing that the entire world does not care about and I mean not I, of course, our Pacific sisters and brothers care because I, I've i come to an understanding that we all speak for each other and we're all united in a sense. But I'm speaking like the entire world, a.k.a. the big countries, they, they kind of just turn deaf and blind when it comes to our issues. And what keeps me motivated to just continue with this work is... Like I said, the past, it's all of the, all of the, all of my family members that have passed on, but they, till their last breath, they had fought for justice. And so I feel like it is my, it is my responsibility to carry the torch and just to keep amplifying their voices. Because at this time, this is way back when, like for for example for my family my great grandfather he was 
and I did not know this until just maybe two years ago. He was traveling by ship. This was, I don't know if this was before planes, but he was traveling by ship. He did not have a passport and he was traveling to share the, the reality and the truth of what was happening here. And for our listeners who are not aware of what Project 4.1 is, Project 4.1 was the United States top secret medical lab study that was conducted to see how radiation affects the body. And under Project 4.1, there was an exposed group and there was a control group. And within this control group, they had divided it and half of that control group was either injected with radiation and the other half was ingesting radiation and so I my family comes from the exposed group because my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother were living on Ronglap Atoll when the bomb the the bomb one of 67 bombs actually when the biggest bomb had detonated and they were displaced four days after the testing. So the United States did not evacuate them the same day, but they actually waited four days. And according to these reports, they wanted to leave the community there to so that the community can absorb as much radiation as possible for the um, experiments. And so when my family was then moved to um, Kwajalein Atoll, where they conducted the Project 4.1 experiments, they had, by this time, they had burns throughout their bodies. They had beta burns and their elbows, mostly where the creases are, the elbows, the necks on their feet. And they had to scrub those burns three times a day in the lagoon, which is salt water. And they had to scrub it with soap three times a day. And a military officer would come with a Geiger counter and scan their bodies to see if they were still contaminated. And when they did this, they had the women and the men separated in groups three times a day for this lagoon bath. But when they were moving them from Rongalap to Kwajalein, Philip, I will just share with you, this is a very heartbreaking reality that they don't really talk about because of the humiliation that's... um, it's woven into this. They had the entire community stand naked on the ship and they had brought a pressure washer and hosed them down. And so they did not separate by male or female. They had mothers, grandmothers, children, sisters and brothers all standing naked and they were hosed down with a pressure washer. And so this is just the the beginning of it. And by now, their hair had already fallen off. A lot of the children were bald because they were playing in the um, radioactive contamination, the fallout. And it's just, it's a lot. It's, It's a very gruesome piece of history. And what I'm sharing with you now is just one page to an entire book. But anyways, my grandfather later on led... Um, many efforts to share their stories with the international community. And it was not just him alone. It was him and a lot of his brothers and sisters, too. They were traveling to share these stories. And so that's one of my motivations. That's the past. (laughs) The present is today I feel like 
there's just a lot of work that needs to be done. And we cannot be content with the way, our, with our livelihood today, with not having cancer care, not having an on, even just an oncologist on island. We just, we cannot be content with that. We cannot accept that. And that's another motivation for me, just present. All the problems of today, I feel like I need to solve. <laughs> And the future is my daughter's. I do not want to leave this world and feeling like I have not done anything to try to make the world at least a better place for them. Wow. Well, this is both very sad and very inspiring to see your energy despite those uh, terrible stories that you grew up with. Um, and... So my, my last question uh, for people who are listening to you and to your stories and, and, and wants to help you or to help those fights uh, to be fought, whether nuclear past or future climate change or just the current present, whereas we talk about inequalities or all those difficulties that our countries are going through, uh, what message would you like to share with them for them to maybe find the energy to become an agent of change? And, as you say, just leave the world a little bit better than when we arrived. I think my only advice for anybody who's listening that would want to become um, drivers for change wherever they are in the world, I think the only advice is to just stand your ground because if you have truth on your side, the truth always prevails. And so that's also another motivation. I feel like someday the truth will prevail and the entire Pacific communities and all other um, frontline communities that have been living with the consequences of radiation and nuclear weapons testing and weapons of mass destruction, one day they will get the justice they deserve. Oh, fantastic. That's a great way to, to close on this uh, big hope that you have, but a hope that is... Uh... Uh, engage every day through your action. So, Ariana, thank you very much uh, for joining us and for sharing your, your testimony and, uh, and, and this fight that you were leading in the Marshall Islands. Thank you so much, Philip. I truly appreciate this. And I also want to thank the organizers once again, the Virtual Island Summit organizers and Pacific Talks organizers for this opportunity to share the Marshallese story. Komol. was the first episode of this special series dedicated to the speakers of the Virtual Island Summit 2022, organized by Island Innovation. To know more about the summit and register for it, feel free to go to the website islandinnovation.co slash events slash virtual island summit. Pacific Talks is a podcast hosted by me, Philippe, and produced by Pacific Venture Media. If you enjoyed this conversation, feel free to subscribe on any podcast platform of your choice. You can also share it on your social medias or with your friends, family or colleagues. And if you listen to it on a podcast platform, feel free to leave us a review. This is very important to us as it helps us to reach out to more people. If you want to share your thoughts and ideas following this conversation, you can reach out to us directly by email, contact at pacificventry.com or on all our social platforms. 
Until next time, with another guest, another discussion on the challenges of our islands, take care and see you soon. Mm -hmm.